Tonight, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6 together. We just sang that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And that last verse says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But praise God for his grace. Like the, the verse says, it binds our hearts to him. It keeps us secure. That, that phrase caught my attention as I was thinking about Exodus 32, prone to wander. That seems to be a good way of describing the people of Israel. Not only wandering around the desert for 40 years in the wilderness, but spiritually speaking, they seem to have a proneness, a tendency to wander from God, didn't they? A proneness to fall into idolatry, a proneness to rebellion against the Lord and His appointed leadership. And we see that on display here in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6, really the next couple of chapters, we see this sin of the Israelites unfold. Let's read, we're just going to look at the first six verses together this evening. Let's read these verses together. Exodus 32, verse 1 says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Let's pray before the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we come before you tonight desiring to know your word. Lord, teach us from this, this story in the life of your people Israel. Lord, as you've said in your word, these stories, these words are written so that we might learn, so that we might uh, learn from their example. And in this case, in Exodus 32, the example of, of what not to follow. So Lord, may we learn the lessons that you have for us in this passage. Give us understanding to see our own hearts, our own tendencies to wander from you. And uh, Lord, may we with renewed zeal desire to worship you and to follow you for your honor, for your glory. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Perhaps other than nailing their Messiah and Savior to a Roman cross, there's probably no more infamous and heinous sin in the history of Israel as a nation than this sin that's recorded in Exodus 32. This is pretty much throughout the Old Testament. One, like the defining Sin, the defining apostasy of the nation of Israel. And the amazing thing about it is it happens so soon after they had entered into this covenant with the Lord. God spoke the words from Mount Sinai and they said, We will obey. We agree to this covenant. They entered into this relationship with the Lord God. 
And while Moses is up on the mountain, still receiving instructions and receiving the the plans and the designs for the tabernacle, which is to be a house for the living Lord, while Moses is still up there, they fall into idolatry and apostasy. In itself, this is a treacherous act of rebellion. But this event really becomes a model, becomes a paradigm for the way that Israel falls into this sin of idolatry time and time again throughout its history. We might say that idolatry became the besetting sin of Israel, continued to ensnare them generation after generation. As we look at this passage together, we might ask the question, what is the cause? What's the root cause of this idolatry, this idolatrous sin that we see in Exodus 32? But we could probably put forth many suggestions to answer that question. What's the root cause? We could say selfishness. We could say a desire for autonomy uh, to, to lead themselves. We could say a lot of different suggestions. But let me suggest this as a possibility for the root cause of why they fell into this sin. And I think this is borne out in the passage as well as from the larger context of Scripture that the root of this idolatrous sin was unbelief. The root of this idolatrous sin was unbelief. We read in the scriptures in the book of Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith, obedience, I should say, springs out of faith. And so if you don't have a foundation of faith, of belief, then obedience is not going to be able to stand. And so I think if we could say, what is a a root cause? I would say perhaps unbelief is the root of what's going on here in Exodus 32. We can even point to that in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. That, That unbelief is a part of the root of what's going on there in their sin against God. And that was part of the the serpent strategy, wasn't it? Was to cause them to doubt. Cause them to doubt God's word. And when you start to doubt and question God's word, that is an entry door, if you will, to unbelief. So they started to question the word of God. They started to doubt the goodness of their creator. That unbelief led to disobedience. And so I think we can see that going on here, that in spite of the fact that Israel has entered into this covenant with the Lord, they're still full of unbelief. They still have uh, this, this doubt that the Lord is really with them, that he's really their God, that he's really going to take care of them, that he's really going to lead them into the promised land. And I think that unbelief manifests itself in many different ways in our passage this evening. First of all, I think their unbelief was manifested in a lack of patience. Their unbelief manifested itself in a lack of patience. You can see that in verse 1, where they say, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they came to Aaron and said. In other words, they got tired of waiting, right? They got impatient. They got restless, We don't know exactly how long Moses was up there. Moses was up on Mount Sinai. He was communing with God. God was meeting with him. God was giving him laws and instructions. He was giving him the pattern for the tabernacle that would become God's dwelling place in the midst of his people. 
He was giving him the pattern for the different vessels that would go into the tabernacle. We don't know how long he was up there, but apparently it was long enough that the people started to doubt whether or not he was ever coming back again. They got impatient. They got restless. They, they, they wanted something to happen. They were tired of waiting. Where's Moses? What's, where is he? What's going to happen? What's going on? We need something to happen. Anything. And so they started to have doubts. And they started to assume the worst. We don't know where this Moses guy is. We don't even know if he's ever coming back. And so, now remember, they live in a day unlike ours, right? They couldn't call him on a cell phone, right? Hey, Moses, where are you? We're we're getting a little restless down here. They, They couldn't call him on a cell phone. They couldn't send him a text message. They could not even send someone up the mountain to inquire about what was going on, could they? God said, you've got to stay away from the mountain. Keep your distance. So Moses is up there. Moses alone can go up there. They have no way of communicating with him. They have to trust, don't they? They have to trust. They have to wait. They're incapable of doing that. They get restless. They, they, they got to have something to happen. They get impatient. And that restlessness and that impatience quickly leads to another manifestation of their unbelief, which is rebellion against God-appointed authority. Their unbelief led to rebellion against God-appointed authority. I think what we see happening in Exodus 32.1 is basically an all-out coup attempt against the leadership that God had appointed over Israel. There, there is a mutiny brewing in Exodus 32.1. And I think you see it in two ways. One is the way they refer to Moses. And they refer to Moses with kind of a veiled attitude of contempt. And the way that they refer to him, and I I think the way that the NIV translates this, I think is, is good because I think it captures the intent of the Hebrew when they say, as for this fellow Moses, we don't know what happened to him. It's almost like the the Hebrew, the way it is, it's kind of like a a little slight attitude of contempt like this guy. As for this guy, we don't know where he is. Or even the way that we might use it in English, who does this guy think he is, right? So it's it's kind of a mindset of contempt against God-appointed leadership, this fellow, this man. Then the second way that it manifests itself is against Aaron. Now, most translations have it that they gathered or they assembled around Aaron. I I think that's maybe a little bit too mild, too peaceful for what I think is going on here. It's just a preposition. Prepositions, these little words that say like around, above, under. This preposition, in most contexts where this verb to assemble is found, is usually in hostile environments. And usually it is assembling or gathering against someone. And there are one or two translations that have it this way in Exodus 32.1. I think that may be a better sense of capturing what's going on here. It is basically this is a mutiny. This 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 is a mob. This is a mob of people. This is not a calm gathering. This is a mob of people gathering against Aaron, and they're basically coming to him demanding 
that, they, that he do something for them. They're, they're essentially presenting him with an ultimatum. Here's what we want, Aaron. We're, we're this hostile mob. We're getting restless. Here's what we want. Here's what we demand. And so both in their attitude towards Moses, who's away, and who knows when he's coming back, and in, their, in the way that they approach Aaron, they, they show, they display a rebellion against God-appointed authority. That's a manifestation of unbelief. Thirdly, their unbelief is manifested in the demand for tangible signs of God's presence among them. Their unbelief is manifested by the demand for tangible signs of God's presence among them. In other words, they're living by sight, not by faith. They're living by sight, not by faith. Because notice what their demand is to Aaron. Come, rise up, make us gods who will go before us. What do they want? They want an image, don't they? They want an idol. They want something tangible that they can see, something they can feel. They, they, want, they want something among them that gives them a more tangible representation that, that God is with them. They, they need something to hold on to. They're living by sight, not by faith. Dwayne Garrett, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, the desire for an idol is based in a pagan sense that the image is reassurance of a divine presence. Without the image, the people are in dread that they have no supernatural protection. It is important to see that the making of the calf, while from one perspective is an act of gross apostasy and rebellion, was from another perspective an act driven by a need for reassurance and even by a misguided piety. In other words, it's, it's a form of worship, but it's a misguided one. Because they wanted something tangible. They wanted something physical. They wanted some kind of reassurance, a sign that God's presence was among them. And then he goes on to apply it to us. Dwayne Garrett in his commentary goes on to apply it to our setting today. He says, the making of the calf proceeded from a desire for reassurance of divine presence and protection. He says, rarely do people fall into apostasy or superstition simply because they have a perverse desire to defy God. Christians may similarly fill their homes or churches with icons or images out of a desire for a tangible sign of spiritual presence. But the fact that the deed is not driven by the most wicked of motives does not lessen the seriousness of either the sin or its result. Basically what he's saying is you can, you can slowly slide into idolatry and paganism by this need, this desire to have something more tangible, physical, representing God. But this is what the second commandment was all about, wasn't it? Because you can't, you can't put bounds on God. You can't tie God down to earth. You can't bound him up by images that are represented by created things in earth. Because God's so much more infinite than that, isn't he? Our God dwells in the heavens, 
The heavens are his throne. The earth is its, is its footstool. There's a sense in which even this tabernacle that God is giving the pattern for can't really contain him. You, you, can't, you can't bring God down to our level and picture him or image him in a way that we can understand. But in our, in our desire to know God, if I could put it that way, or a desire to feel God's presence, sometimes we resort to the tangible or the physical using it as a crutch to worship or assurance, but it's still pagan. And that's what's happening here. They, their unbelief was manifested in the desire for something tangible, something they could see, touch, feel, to remind them that God was with them. But that's where faith comes in, isn't it? Hebrews 11.1, 1, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We can't live by sight. As people of God, we're called to faith. So we live by faith, not by sight. But the unbelief of the Israelites showed itself in a desire to see and to feel the divine. But our God can't be tied down like that. So we worship by faith, not by sight. Fourthly, their unbelief is manifested in a desire to return to the paganism of their past. Their unbelief is manifested in a desire to return to the paganism of their past. In verse 1, it says, make us gods. There is some debate, and you can see this in some of the different translations. There is a debate about the best way to translate Elohim, which is the Hebrew word here. God, singular, or gods, plural. Are they saying, make us a god in a visible way, singular, or are they saying, make us gods, plural, in a polytheistic sense? The word Elohim is the word that we use for God, for the one true God. And, and so when we're using it to refer to the one true God, we use it in the singular. But when it's not referring to the one true God, often it is intended to be used in the plural, in the sense of many gods. And in this particular verse... The word Elohim is followed by a verb that has a plural ending on it, which suggests that it should be taken as a plural, gods. So make us gods, plural, meaning in their minds, they're thinking the, the manner of worship that we need to engage in is the manner of worship that we are familiar with. It is the manner of worship that we have seen. It's the manner of worship that we were used to in Egypt. And so in their unbelief, they're resorting back to their past paganism and what they have seen done and what they're used to. Make us gods. Make us a plurality of gods. So in doubting God and in doubting his representative Moses, they're returning to their old patterns of life. Have we ever caught ourselves in situations like that where in moments of unbelief, we're tempted to live like our pre-Christian life, our pagan past. That's what's happening here. In their unbelief, they're, they're going back to the paganism of their past. Then in verse 2, we see Aaron's really failed leadership. And, and so Aaron's unbelief, or at least weakness of faith on the part of Aaron, manifested itself in weak leadership that succumbed to the cries of the mob. Aaron's lack of faith, or at least weakness of faith, showed itself in 
weak leadership and basically giving in, capitulating to the cries of the mob. Now, this is Aaron, right? This is Aaron who we're talking about. Who is Aaron? If you go all the way back to the beginning of Exodus, Aaron serves a very special role in this relationship between God and his people. God has chosen Moses, but do you remember Moses started making excuses? He says, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not good. I'm not good at public speaking. And God had an answer for that. And what was his answer? I'm going to send Aaron along with you. Aaron can be your spokesperson when you appear before Pharaoh and when you speak to the people. And God says, Aaron is essentially going to be your prophet. Aaron is Moses' representative. That is who he is supposed to, that's his God-appointed role. He is, Moses is the one who God appointed to lead the people. Aaron is God-appointed representative and spokesperson, prophet for Moses. Aaron is supposed to speak on Moses' behalf and stand up for what Moses has taught the people and the covenant that Moses has revealed to the people But Aaron isn't operating by loyalty or principle or truth or loyalty to God here at all. Aaron seems to be capitulating to the will of the mob, to the heat of the moment. In a way, it kind of reminds me of Pilate when the mob was crying out, no, we want Jesus, crucify him. And Pilate basically says, do what you want. I'm washing my hands. He tries to absolve himself of the responsibility but basically, he's not showing any leadership at all. He's just giving in to the mob. Seems to be what Aaron is doing here. He's just, it, they, he sees the violence, he sees the hostility of the mob, and he says, okay, let's do what you want. So he's supposed to be Moses' representative, but he's betraying Moses, who, by the way, is also his brother, right? Where is this fellow, Moses? We don't know where he is. We don't know if he's coming back. Aaron should have said, He's coming back. Just hold on. Trust. Wait. He's coming back. Aaron gives in to the mob. He shows weak leadership. And it's a symptom of unbelief. He gives in to the people. And so he says, take off the gold earrings from your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And when we think of this, probably the best way to understand this is that one of the easiest ways in this ancient time period to transport items of value was in jewelry. They didn't have coins at this point in history. They didn't have, you know, denominations of money. A lot of times uh, things that were traded, bartered for goods or services were things of intrinsic value, things such as gold or silver. And so people would have jewelry of gold and silver and various other metals. And so they had these things. And by the way, they got them from the Egyptians, right? When they left Egypt, they were blessed with clothes and gold and silver. And so they come out with all of this, all these possessions under the blessing of the Lord. And now they're turning back their backs on him and using his blessing to turn from him and fall into rebellion against him. And by the way, Aaron has a plan here, doesn't he? Aaron knows what he's doing. He's capitulated to the mob, but now he has a plan. Bring me your your earrings, your gold earrings. Why? Because he knows what he's going to do with them, right? He's got a plan for what he's going to do with them. Despite what he tries to excuse himself later on, one of the funniest verses in all the Bible, out came this calf, right? This calf just kind of jumped out. 
Aaron knew what he was doing. He said, bring me your gold, bring me your your earrings, and I'm going to fashion this calf. And they obey. Interesting, isn't it? So verse 3 says, So all the people took off their earrings, and they brought them to Aaron. And in a passage on rebellion, that verse sounds very obedient. Doesn't it? This is a whole passage on rebellion and apostasy, yet in verse 3, they do exactly what Aaron told them to do. Why is that? Well, it is obedience in a sense, but it's obedience in all the wrong directions and for all the wrong reasons, isn't it? The people listened to Aaron when he instructed them to do wrong because it fit with their impulses and their desires of what they wanted to do. People are happy to obey when it fits with their desires and when they have already demanded that direction anyway. If you basically give an order and instruction because you're, you're bowing to the will of the people, they'll be happy to obey because you've given them what they want. And that's what's happening here. Sixth, I think this, this passage reveals that their unbelief manifested itself in a direct covenant violation of the second commandment. Their unbelief manifested itself in a direct covenant violation of the second commandment. Aaron takes what they gave him. He makes it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Likely he took their gold. He melted it down. He put it into some of some kind of a form to form it in the shape of this calf. And then as it's hardening, he's also taking tools and he is fashioning it, putting the fine touches on it, if you will. Interesting enough, the very last chapter, chapter 31, God appointed two men to be the craftsmen for the tabernacle and its vessels. And it wasn't Aaron. It was Bezalel and Aholiab. Those were the two that were appointed by God to do this kind of work on the holy vessels. Aaron is not fulfilling his role. Aaron is usurping someone else's role. Aaron is doing this out of unbelief. So Aaron takes this upon himself. He makes this idol. He fashions it with purpose, with care, with design. A lot of effort, a lot of wealth went into this. And then the people say, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. If that phrase sounds familiar, it's because we read it earlier in 1 in, in Kings. In 1 Kings, Jeroboam uses this exact phrase when he makes those two golden calves in Bethel and Dan. What is he doing? He knows exactly what he's doing. He is wanting to separate the worship of Israel, which he is now the king of the northern tribes. He is purposefully wanting to separate the worship of Israel from the worship of Jerusalem. And so in doing so, he sets up something that is essentially in continuity with their past track record of worship. And so he he does this. He sets up these calves and he says, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Why a calf? Why, why a cow? It seems odd to us, right? Seems strange. Well, it, it does seem odd to us, but it would not seem odd if you have spent your life living in ancient Egypt, right? And so in ancient Egypt, cows 
uh, bovine animals were deities. And there were, they were common in both Egyptian religion and in Canaanite religion. We can give specifics, but I won't do that at this point. But both in Egyptian and in Canaanite religion, you had these deities that were viewed, imaged as bovine animals. So they're doing based on what they've seen before. But this is a direct violation of the second commandment. No graven images. No likeness of anything. Not in the heavens above, not in the earth below. Nothing. Not not fashioning after the stars, not after people, not after animals. Nothing. Why? Because God cannot be imaged. The perfect image of God is His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. In essence, to set up an image is to blaspheme Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the image of God, the perfect image of God. And so they're in direct rebellion against the second commandment in the covenant, which basically cuts off the covenant, doesn't it? It annuls the covenant. They've, they've entered into it. Now they've broken their side of the agreement, and that's why God threatens to destroy them, as we'll see in the verses ahead. But they have directly violated their covenant with God. Lastly, in verse 6, their unbelief manifested itself in false forms of worship. Their unbelief manifested itself in false forms of worship. Now, this is fascinating. If you look at verses 5 and 6, it says, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. A couple of things I want to point out here. One is notice who Aaron says in verse number five that he's making a festival to. In your Bibles, it will have the word Lord in all capital letters. That means Aaron is using the divine name of God. He's, he's specifically referring to Yahweh by name. And he's saying, with this golden calf and with a festival and sacrifices tomorrow, we're going to worship Yahweh. What's happening here? Basically, what's happening is a, what's called syncretism. It's a mixture of, of Aaron is taking a worship of the one true God, but he's mixing it with all these pagan elements from Egypt of the calf. And, 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 so, and not only that, but he, Aaron, has taken upon himself the role of appointing a new festival. Aaron has taken it upon himself to, to order the offering of sacrifices. In other words, Aaron is basically making it up as he goes along, isn't he? He's making it up as he goes along. He's mixing the pagan with the holy. And notice the excitement of the people. They're glad to participate. In verse 6, it says they got up early. They were ready to go. They were like kids on Christmas. They were excited. 
This is a festival. This is going to be great. They had their tangible, visible reassurance that God was with them. They willingly brought sacrifices to offer. They gave of their possessions. They gave of their animals. They were willing to do that. And without argument. But it was, here's the key. It was all to a worship of their own design. It was all to a worship of their own design. It was not the worship being designed by God and being shown to Moses on the mountain. God was designing his own worship, wasn't he, on the mountain. And he was showing Moses how it was to be done. Aaron was coming up with his own by their own design while Moses was away. It was a worship of their own making. It was a worship that catered to their senses, wasn't it? It was self-referential. It was a self-referential worship. It made them feel better. It gave them something to look at and able to touch and feel. It, It appealed to their senses of sight and smell and touch and taste and hearing. And so they ate and they drank in celebration and they got up to laugh and to party and dance. It was basically a festival, a joyous party celebrating the dedication of their new God. But it was all of their own making. And it does make me wonder... How many churches are full of people who get up and get dressed and they're willing to give their offerings, but they do it because the church pleases them? Because the church is basically a church that suits them of their own making. It is a form of worship that suits their desires and their longings. It's a form of worship that suits their senses of sight, taste, hearing, touching, and smelling. Are our churches designed around God and his infallible word of scripture? Or are our churches designed around our wants and desires? We live today in evangelical Christianity in America. We live in a consumer mindset when it comes to church. What do I mean by that? People go around visiting churches and they got their little checklist almost like they're shopping for a new car, right? So if you're shopping for a new car, okay, it's got to have this. I want it to be this color. It's got to have these features. That's exactly how people approach church in our American evangelical context, for the most part. So there are large swaths of Christianity in America that is very consumeristic. It's very me-centered. It is very just, just like this. And we think, man, that golden calf, that's so long ago, that's so foreign. We would never do anything like that. And yet, in many ways, we approach worship today in much the same way because we want it to our own making. We want it to our own liking. That suits what we need to feel. And so much of church going today is very self-referential. Does it meet my wants, my desires, what I perceive to be my needs? But what should be the focus of church? It's God, right? God, the one and only God, the the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the God who is our redeemer, the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from our sin and give us eternal life. That is the focus of our worship. 
And so we should not be motivated by what makes me feel good, what, what ticks off the boxes on my desired checklist of wants in a church. The number one check box or box in your checklist should be, does this church preach the gospel and seek to glorify God by honoring his word? That should be number one. Not, not oh, they don't sing my favorite song or... Or I don't like that style of music. Or I don't like the, the way the people dress there. Or I don't like the way the preacher dresses. Or whatever. You know, there's so many, all these criteria. I don't like the fact that they, their, their kids program isn't exactly what I'm looking for. It's not big enough. It's not small enough. It's not the one that we're used to. You know, whatever. The list could go on and on. What is the center? The center is God and His truth. And so may we, as a people, may we... Strive with all of the grace that God gives us to strengthen our faith. And where we fail, let's pray, Lord, help my unbelief, right? Because unbelief sets us up for all kinds of manifestations of rebellion against God. And so let's learn the lessons of faith that this passage has for us. So don't think of it as something 4,000 years ago in a culture so, so different from ours because their hearts were the same as our hearts. Their hearts were prone to idolatry. Our hearts are prone to idolatry, just the same as theirs. It's just manifested in different ways in 2019 than it was in, say, 2000 B.C. And so may God apply his word to us and may we desire to draw closer to him and to his word and be anchored to him and allow him to dictate how we worship him, not how we desire to worship him. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, our God, you are holy and righteous and true. You are the God who is worthy of all honor, all praise, all glory. Our Father, it is so easy for us. We are prone to wander. We are prone to want our own way. We're prone to desire the things that that we like, the things that make us feel good. Father, when we come to worship you, may we have our minds focused on you. May we love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Help us to put aside all the distractions and all the, the things that really don't matter in the grand scheme of eternity. Lord, I pray that you would anchor us to yourself. Lord, by your grace, keep us and draw us home when we're prone to wander. Lord, we thank you for the mercy you've shown us in Christ. Lord, help us to be your faithful people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.